Amen. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. I ask you to turn in uh, your Bibles to... Uh, let's, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to read that passage, and then we're going to jump to John chapter 20 for the rest of the message. Matthew 28 and John chapter 20, if you would. I want to read this passage in Matthew 28, and really we just... It's really just for background of what's going on. Last week we discussed the idea of Christ being rejected of men, a man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief, that he was despised and rejected, that he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was forsaken by all, but we cannot have Resurrection Sunday without the rejection of the Savior by men. He had to be delivered into human hands in order to suffer and die and be raised again the third day. And we get a very familiar piece of passage in Matthew 28 and verse 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. And sat upon it, his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became his dead man. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth forth before you into Galilee, and he shall, uh, and there shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of life. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine on our drive in here, Lord. We do thank you for the sunrise, the reason that we come and uh, celebrate this weekend, Lord, the the resurrection of your son Jesus, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for uh, the cross. I thank you for most of all the empty tomb here this morning, Lord, that the throne is occupied, Lord, that Jesus sits on your right hand making intercession for us. Lord, I do pray as we have sang songs and lifted up our praise to you that it's been a sweet savor. Lord, I do pray that you would help me as I, as I preach, help me to set aside anything that uh, needs not to be said, but Lord, use me to lift up your son Jesus here this morning so that we can look and that we can live. Lord, I just pray that uh, everything that is done here would bring honor and glory to your most holy name, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. John chapter 20 for the... For the rest of it, you know, over the last few days, the whole purpose uh, of God's Son coming to the earth uh, has taken over the thoughts of many. Easter and Christmas seem to be the only dates that everyone loves and that everyone knows the meaning of. Philippians two tells us that Easter is about the Christ Jesus emptying Himself. We went to a nice pres- Easter presentation last. 
last night where Jesus comes out on the clouds before he enters, enters heaven and takes on the form of a servant and he takes off his crown and he takes off his purple robe and that he comes in the form of a servant, okay, in the likeness of a servant as Philippians chapter 2 tells us. He, he emptied himself of all of those heavenly fancies and he became obedient, okay? He became obedient even to the death of the cross, And it was the death of the cross that was reserved for the most horrible criminals. It was reserved for those that weren't even deemed to be worthy of being held in prison. You know, if you go into the account where he's before Pilate and you have Jesus standing on one side and you have Barabbas, a known criminal, a known known thief, a known horrible murderer person, okay, And, and you have both of these and... They was willing to hold Barabbas in prison. That's where he come from. Before they brought him to Pilate, he was in prison. And that he was worthy to be held in prison. But when they said, release unto us Barabbas, what did they do with Jesus? A man who had never committed not one sin, what did they do with him? They didn't hold him in prison. They took him and said, crucify him. Crucify him. He's not even worthy to be held in the prison. The cross was a sign of shame. You know, the scripture says that cursed is a man that hangs on the tree. It was a sign of shame. It was a sign of reproach. It was a sign of rejection. The Son of God had been rejected by all. He had been delivered into the hands of sinful man to be crucified, to be killed, and to die for his people. And that's what happened. Jesus Christ uh, of Nazareth, he died, okay, He did die. We have to understand that Jesus, the man, died. Some people think that he just was asleep, okay? No, Jesus died there on Calvary. He had to die for you and me. It says the wages of sin is death. He paid our sin debt. He paid our death penalty. Jesus of Nazareth died there on Calvary. And can you imagine what happened or what was in the hearts of the people that followed him those short three years? Their leader, their teacher, their master, their healer was gone. And now what? What now? For them, it looked like the story was over. Their hope had been shattered. Their liberation was gone. Their, their being set free was, was gone. But since we know the full story, we have the whole counsel of God. Because we know the full story, we know that it didn't stop there. Just a few days later, with the resurrection of Jesus, all would be restored. Just as the brother prayed, we need to be restored. We need to be renewed. And that's what happened at the resurrection of Jesus. He restored some things. As the women go to the tomb, Jesus is not where they left him. Jesus is not there. He had risen. He was alive. And before he would go back to glory, before he would ascend to sit at his reserved place beside the Father, he would have a few pit stops he had to make. He would have a few stops that he needed to go and restore some folks. He would need to make restoration for some of those people that we talked about last week that had forsaken him, right? Some things needed to be restored before he would go back. And in John chapter 20, I want you to note that there's two of them here. 
There's two. He had to restore the hope of Mary Magdalene. He had to restore her hope. In John chapter 20, and you can read Mary's account down in verse 11, it says that Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus was lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto him, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had, uh, said, when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. He needed to restore Mary Magdalene. Her hope, her hope was gone. When you look at her story, when you look at her story, look at her past, and you go back into Luke in chapter 8, it tells us a little bit about it. It tells us that Mary was a demon-possessed woman. She was filled with devils. It says, actually, Luke's, Luke's account says that she had seven devils. That she had been relieved of her evil spirits. It tells us about that. That, the, that Jesus had come in and removed those evil spirits. After she had been set free, we would see her following her healers, following the person who had set her free. Okay, we see her following in many occasions, and one in particular in John chapter 12, we see her none other than the place that we see her a bunch at the feet of Jesus. We see her, the one that had set her free from her demons, we see her at the feet of Jesus. But here in John chapter 12, she does something specific. She takes an alabaster box of ointment, a pound of it, a pound of ointment, and she takes it and she pours it over Jesus' feet. And she pours it on her head, or on his head. And she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with the hairs of her head. She begins to anoint him, prepare him for his burial, for his death. So it would be easy to say, that Jesus was loved by Mary. That Mary loved him would be an understatement. He had given her hope in a dark world. In all of those, those demon-possessed cases, and Jesus cast out many demons in his time. We can see that all through Scripture. And you know those people, they were, they were set free from their bondage. They were set free from the evil. They were set free from something that was hurting themselves that they didn't want to be hurt from. You know, and, and they would turn to Jesus and they would uh, be set free from that. But now her healer was gone. The one had given her hope in a dark world. He was gone. And some say that this was Jesus' first appearance, that when he come after he arose to come back and see Mary, and as he approached her, surely from her weeping, and surely from our, first, from our first reading in Matthew 28, it says it was early in the morning before daylight. She was coming when the Sabbath was over to come and, uh, you know, pre prepare the body. 
and her healer was gone. And as she cried, and as the early early daylight, she couldn't really she couldn't really see what was going on. But something happened. Jesus spoke to her. Jesus spoke to her. And when he spoke to her, John 10 and 3 comes to mind, where it says, my sheep, they hear my voice. They know me, and they follow me. Mary recognizes, right? Well, she can't recognize what he looks like. She can't see him because of the water in her eyes and the low daylight. But what does she hear? She hears his voice, right? My sheep hear my voice. Mary recognizes his voice and with joy would cry out, Master, a word that would only be used one other time in all of Scripture, and it would be used by none other than blind Bartimaeus. He would be used by him where he comes to him, and, and Jesus says, What would you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Master, that I might receive my sight. There, there as, as Mary cries out to her master, her hope, her faith in all of the followings and all the anointings and all the teachings and all the stories that she was part of in Jesus, her hope was restored because her master had been risen again. There's one other person here in John chapter 20 I want to look at, and we, we mentioned him last week, but Thomas. We need to talk about Thomas because Jesus restored Thomas as well. In John chapter 11 and verse 16, Thomas had a little bit of faith. He had a little bit of faith because Jesus wanted to go into Judea. He wanted to go into hostile territory. Why? Because Lazarus had died. Lazarus had died and he, that was, that was Jesus' close personal friend. So much so that we see that he wept over him. But Jesus went into hostile territory and, and Thomas in John 11 and 16 says, let us go with him. Let us go with him that we may die. He, Thomas, would go into the town knowing that Jesus would be in control. Thomas in that faith, though, we talked about last week, he was part of the 12 when Jesus was praying in the garden that he would forsake him as well. He would forsake Jesus, just as the others did, and he would run. He would watch his teacher die, and his faith would depart from him. Right? Of all the things that he'd done, all the miracles he had seen, and all the healings that he had done, and uh, the calming of the storms, and the casting out of the demons, and he, he had such great faith in this man, and all of a sudden, it's gone. But Jesus needed to restore. At the end of John chapter 20, I want you to see something here. Verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, he wasn't with them when Jesus first showed up, okay? The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto him, Except I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. His faith was gone. His faith was gone. He, he could see. He watched his Savior die. His faith was gone in this man. But Jesus wouldn't leave him in that state, would he? He needed to be restored. Look at verse 26. It says, And after eight days again the disciples were within, and Thomas was with him. 
And when then came Jesus and the doors were shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas. You know, it would be one thing for him to come into the room and just address them as a group. But just a few verses later, we see Thomas doubt. We see Thomas's faith weak. But he speaks directly to him. You know, I, I think of another instance when Jesus tells Peter that he would deny him three times and the, and the cock would crow. But it says that as soon as the cock crew, Jesus looked dead at him. You want to talk about cutting you like a knife. It would cut you like a knife that when the prophecy would come forward and you realized it, man, it would cut your core. It would cut you to the core. And here he says unto Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. He, he pointed out the exact things that he would not believe in. The exact things, unless I see his hands, unless I touch the nail prints, unless I see his side, I will not believe. And Jesus was direct. He said, here, look here, here's my hands. Reach hither and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen, thou hast believed, but blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. When we look at Thomas, Thomas was one that was struggling with his, with his faith. And Jesus would not leave him there. He would address it directly. You know, we get and put in circumstances like that where our faith is tested and, and maybe there's a little bit of doubt that sneaks in there. But Jesus addresses it directly if we would just ask. If we would just ask. And I want you to see something. He says, Lord and God. He uses two words here, kairos and theos. This would be a direct link to the beginning of the book of John to imply his deity, right? John, if you, if you think about it, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have an overwhelming uh, view of who Jesus is. Matthew views him as the king, Right? Because when Matthew chapter 1, that first chapter that we're all guilty of, when we get there, we just skim through those names because we can't pronounce them real good. But that shows his kingly lineage, right? Mark views him as the servant. Luke views him as the great physician or the healer, the doctor. You see a whole lot of good stuff in Luke. But John, John views him as the Son of God, deity, God in human flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same illustration here by Thomas when he says, my Lord and my God. In a way, this was Thomas's way of displaying his restored faith by saying, just like Peter would just a few, few days before, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I suppose I cannot go forward without asking, how is your faith and hope right now? In a dark and dying world, how is your faith, how is your hope? Are you stuck in a hard time where it's, where it's hard to trust? Maybe now is the time that you need to fall on your knees and ask God to reveal Himself to you, to restore. Maybe you need to cry out like David when he says, Restore unto me the joy, the hope, and the faith of your salvation from Psalm 51. Maybe your faith needs restored. There's something else that needs to be restored when Jesus, is, when Jesus uh, arises. One, He establishes fellowship amongst his believers. They were all together at one point. They all followed him, but at the amount of persecution, they would disperse. They would go away. And it seems to me that when Jesus died on Calvary, that his followers, they would would scatter and they would go on and do their own thing. But Jesus, after his resurrection, he did not just appear once. You notice that when we read, he does not just appear to Mary Magdalene. He does not just appear to Thomas. He does not just appear to Peter. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he would appear to almost 500 people in one sitting. Right? Out of some, uh, some say to be as many as 12 appearances Jesus would go to his people so that they would have the same story, that they would have the same bond of unity, that they would see a risen Savior because the story, the the testimony, the faith, is there's strength in numbers. Because Peter goes on to say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We have not, you can go to 2 Peter in chapter 1 and it says we've not followed false prophecies we've not followed fables we've not followed man's stories but we were eyewitnesses eyewitnesses that's what Jesus wanted here he wanted unity I believe this would bring back a form of unity around a risen savior which is the same unity that we strive for in the body of Christ today we strive for unity around a risen savior Not only did he restore fellowship amongst the believers, but he would also restore a more important fellowship with his resurrection. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? He restored our fellowship with God. With his resurrection, he would restore our fellowship with the Creator. Okay, we need to understand that. With Jesus' resurrection, he would restore the fellowship between God and man. And I want you to see this one. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Paul writes of Abraham here in this passage. I want you to see Romans chapter 4 and verse 21. It says, Abraham, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. God had given him a a bunch of promises. And it says that he was fully persuaded of those 
promises. In 22 it says, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Verse 23 it says, And it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But who else? Us. Us. We read the scriptures because they were written down for us, for you and me. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses. But it says he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. You know what the scriptures say? It was of him, to him, and through him. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 15, I don't want you to turn there this morning, but you're going to read a section of verses starting in chapter 15 and verse 14 that there's a long list of things that if Christ be not raised, then our fellowship is somewhere else. Just a few. It says, if Christ be not raised, our preaching is in vain. If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. If Christ be not raised, we are false witnesses. If Christ be not raised, we are still in our sin. If Christ be not raised, then the dead that have gone on before us, the ones that have died in Christ, what? They've perished. There's no hope for them. After this life, they're gone. If Christ be not raised. And the one that kills me, Verse 19 says, If Christ be not raised, then we are men most miserable. We are most miserable. But Jesus did raise. Jesus did raise, and we're still talking about it today. He raised and he he went on in that play. One of my favorite scenes in all of that play is when Jesus goes on back to glory and he's carrying the bowl. He's carrying the bowl and he goes up and right beside the right beside the throne. He goes over to the mercy seat. He goes over to the mercy seat and he grabs a big old handful of that blood and he sprinkles it just like in Levitical times for the final atonement. For the final atonement of yours and my sin. He goes up to glory and he atones for the sin of his People, one final time, declaring that those that would believe on his name, uh, they, they, it would impute his righteousness to them before an almighty God. Let me, let me get you to understand something. The garden was perfect, okay? The garden was perfect before sin entered. There was 100% perfect fellowship with an almighty God before sin entered. When Adam ate the fruit, that fellowship was broken. That fellowship was broken. And there had to be a sacrifice from then on to restore that fellowship between God and man. And you get the ceremonial law. And those laws pointed forward to Jesus. That when he would die, when his blood was shed, when he would be buried, when he would rise again the third day, and that he would ascend back to glory, that that blood would cover the sin of his people. That that fellowship 
would be restored. His resurrection restored our fellowship with God. In 1 Peter 3 and 18, it says that he suffered once that he might bring us to God. Amen? Not only did he restore faith and hope, not only did he restore fellowship with believers and with us and God, but there's one other. I want you to turn to John chapter 21. He restored faith. He restored fellowship. But he needed to restore focus. Look at John chapter 21. It says, verse 1, After these things Jesus showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed himself. There were, also, or there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the other two disciples. And Simon Peter said unto him, I'm going fishing. I go fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. And they went forth and entered into the ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. I want to stop there for just a minute. There are times when things don't go as planned. There are times when things that they ultimately happen, what they do is they make us lose our sight. They make us lose our vision. They make us lose our goals. They make us lose our zeal. Okay? We lose focus, and it happened to Peter. In John chapter 21 and verse 3, what did it say? He's going fishing. He was going fishing. And then there's a chain reaction of him going fishing because the other disciples, they go too. And when we lose our focus, when Christians get distracted, it has an impact on other people around us. It has an impact on the Christian people around us, and it for sure has an impact on the lost people around us. Peter said, I'm going fishing. But if you go back to Luke 5, Matthew 4, and I'm sure it's in Mark, you can see that instead of doing what the Lord had commanded him to do, he had reverted back to his old ways. You know what I mean? Back to his old ways. What was Jesus' instruction for Peter to do? In Luke chapter 5, he says, From henceforth, thou will not catch fish anymore, but you're supposed to catch men. You are supposed to catch men. You are to go and preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter had lost his focus. Even though he had denied Christ and watched Jesus die, and even though he had seen him rise again, what did he still do? He went back to his old ways. He lost his focus. Jesus needed to restore that. And in John 21 and 15, he does that. It says, so when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, thou son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And, I, and he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. 
And he saith unto him a second time, Simon, son of Jodas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love you. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verse 17, he saith unto him a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him a third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. For every time that he would deny Christ, he said, your focus needs to be restored. It needs to be restored. Jesus asked him three times if Peter loves him, and Peter seems to be annoyed to the point where he said, Lord, you already know. You know all things. You know everything that's going on. You're always in control. Why do you keep asking me these things? Much like we do. Much like we would do. People ask me the same question over and over. It irritates me. Does that bother you, Lee? No, it doesn't bother you. That's good. Don't ask me. Jesus was trying to get him to understand that his calling wasn't to catch fish. His calling was to feed the lambs of God. And his focus needed to be restored. The focus is to preach the gospel to all saints, all people. And when God uses the preaching of his word, he will save his people to himself. We continue to teach them after they're saved. We continue to disciple them. And in Philippians 3, Paul writes, Not that I've already attained, but I press on. You know, it's one of these things where, like in Psalm 119, in the first eight verses, it talks about that perfect life. It talks about that perfect life and the, the prize is the door in the back, okay? And the, the prize is the door at the back. And as we, as we travel on this journey, and we, what happens is we'll get, we'll get distracted and we'll get over here and we'll, we'll mess something up over here. You know what happened? We've lost our focus. But if I'm on this journey and by some reason that somebody would cross my path, as long as my eyes are on the back, long as my focus is on glory, long as my focus is on the cross, as long as my focus is on the blood of Jesus, everything will be okay. But it's all about focus. Our focus has got to be in the right spot. He says, I press on. Not that I've already attained, not that I've made it to the door, but I continue to look, I continue to march, I continue to press till I get there. Right? Our focus has got to be in the right spot. I heard a preacher say this week, and it baffled me. It baffled me. Look at the Christian armor in Ephesians 6. You'll notice that there is no armor for the backside. Breastplate, shield, sword, helmet, belt, shoes. Nothing in the back. You know why? Because the Christian march is forward because it is forward the battle is forward the pressing is forward the christian walk is forward we press on when our focus is in the right spot 
Sometimes when things get hard, we need to be reminded of our focus. But we don't need to do like Peter did. Check out um, verse 21. Verse 20, it says, Then Peter, turning about, this is after Jesus had annoyed him for some reason for asking him if he loved him. Verse 20 says, Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which leaned on his breast at supper, and said unto him, Lord, uh, and said, Lord, which is he that would betray thee? And Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, What about him? What about this man? That's like when I'm studying scripture and the Lord tells me to do something. Well, what about Mike Samlin? What about Lee Castor? What about Clarence Samlin? Jesus said, don't worry about that. My focus, my focus, it says here, if I will, in verse 22, if I will that he tarry till I come back, what's that to you? What is that to you? Is he going to distract your focus? Because my eyes aren't supposed to be on those three men. My eyes are supposed to be on Calvary. My eyes are supposed to be on Jesus. My eyes are supposed to be on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, as for you, as for you, you follow me. Is your focus in the right spot? Listen, at the cross of Calvary, all things seem to be lost But with the resurrection of Jesus, all things can be restored. Faith is restored that God can do exceeding and abundantly above anything that we ask or think. When we are are close to Jesus, our fellowship with God and other believers is united. And boy, as you go on, it gets sweeter. The fellowship gets sweeter. And when we get close to the resurrected Savior, we can see clearer. We can see clearer. Our focus is good. Even if we've got to wear glasses, we need to look through that Jesus lens so that our focus is in the right spot, that our focus is on the high calling. He says, I, not that I've already attained, but I press on to the high calling of God. Jesus is a Savior of restoration. As much as he was rejected, as much as he was despised, as much as he was grieved and sorrowed, he come back three days later and he restored it all by one resurrection. That's the Savior we serve. One that restores. One that restores those that would believe on him uh, through his precious blood being sacrificed. He restores them to a fellowship that is sweet with the Heavenly Father. Restores them. You know my favorite part, my favorite part about the prodigal son. It says that when he when the father saw his son afar off, he didn't wait for him. He didn't wait for him, Stewie. He ran to him. And all of the stuff that he had done, all the sin he had committed, all the the wealth that he had destroyed, give him to him new. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. He restored him right into the family of God. 
Ain't that good? That's our Savior. Restored. Restored. God is a God of restoration. If you would just believe on his son Jesus. I had an old boy sing a song yesterday at a men's breakfast, and I'll quit with this. He says, salvation has come down to men. Jesus bled and died for sinners just like you and me. He was crucified. But on that glorious third day, he would rise again and ascend up to glory. He said, that's the gospel story. Salvation had come down. Let's all stand. Pray that the Lord's blessed you as a result of you being here. I do pray that you always keep that you always keep in mind the empty tomb.